When you were a kid, did you ever feel like you really just needed to set yourself apart from the group? Did you ever want to prove that you could accomplish something big? That you could be independent and establish some special interests and make decisions different from the ones your friends or siblings were making? Did you ever just want to be noticed? Maybe in a quiet way, but still, noticed? I'm pretty sure most of us can look back on our childhoods and or teen years and relate to those feelings. And Zinnia Taylor, aka Zinni, the star of Chasing Redbird by Sharon Creech, can definitely relate. 13-year-old Zinni is a member of a huge family, and she often feels like she gets lost in the mix. She spends a lot of time with her Uncle Nate and Aunt Jessie, and not only because she lives with a lot of guilt about the untimely loss of their daughter, Rose. Rose was just four years old when she passed away from a case of whooping cough that Zinni gave her. Rose and Zinni were practically twins, and Zinni grieves for her cousin intensely, even a decade later. But when Aunt Jessie dies, things get even more difficult for Zinni. Uncle Nate isn't acting like himself, and Zinni has lost any sense of belonging she once had with her family. She's still dealing with the general chaos of everyone in her house, trying to figure out why an older boy named Jake Boone keeps coming around to see her, and navigating her complicated feelings about Aunt Jessie's death. Could that have been her fault, too? When Zinni discovers a trail behind her family's property that's in need of a little TLC, she takes it upon herself to uncover all 20 miles of it. And as you can imagine, what she discovers is much bigger than, well, a 20-mile trail. On episode 141, my guests and I take a deep dive into the plot of Chasing Redbird, which was published in 1997. We discuss the guilt Zinni carries and the way the book navigates matters of grief and mental health, and consider how that might be different in a book written today. We debate whether Jake Boone is a creeper or a hero, and think about how Zinni's future might play out after the action of the book is finished. We think about what it is that Zinni really takes from her experience on the trail, and what this novel teaches young readers about identity. I'll note that we spend quite a bit of time discussing grief and mental health on this episode, so if those are especially sensitive topics for you, please listen with caution. Let's say a big SSR welcome to this week's guest, Sarah Hogel. Sarah's new book, Twice Shy, is now available, and as you will hear more about on the episode, I really loved it. Sarah is a mom of three who enjoys trashy TV and provoking her husband for attention. I feel both of those things so hard. Sarah's dream is to live in a falling apart castle in a forest that is probably cursed. In addition to Twice Shy, she is the author of You Deserve Each Other. Follow Sarah on Twitter at Witch of the Words and on Instagram at Sarah underscore Hogel. Many thanks to Sarah for revisiting one of her childhood favorites with me. Don't forget to join the SSR party on social media if you haven't already. If I do say so myself, it's a pretty good time. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. One of my very favorite things about social media is that it gives me the chance to see what episodes you're listening to and loving, so please don't be shy about taking screenshots of episode 141 and posting them to your social media platform of choice. You can even add a note about what you're doing while you're listening. Don't forget to tag SSR so I can see. Last week, I announced the May picks for the SSR Book Club. Next month, the SSRBC will be reading, drumroll please, 
The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and The Westing Game. And we have some fantastic leaders prepping to make it an amazing experience for you. This month's discussions about The Giver and You Should See Me in a Crown have been so fun, and I know it's just going to keep going that way. Join the SSRBC for free at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or by clicking the link in SSR's Instagram bio. If you are a big fan of SSR and would like to support it so I can continue putting out tons of free content like these weekly episodes and the book club, I invite you to check out what's happening in the Patreon community. Patreon lets you support independent creators for a few dollars per month in exchange for exclusive rewards. On SSR's Patreon, I offer things like monthly video reading recaps, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, Patreon parties, merch, and more. Join for $1, 5 or $10 per month at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If you are already part of the SSR Patreon family, please know how much I appreciate you. Around here, we also like to show our appreciation for independent bookstores, and Libro.fm offers us a great way to do that. Libro.fm has made it possible for you to support indie bookstores instead of giant corporations when you buy audiobooks. The audiobooks you can get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now that the weather has improved, I've started listening to audiobooks while I go for runs outside, and I am really enjoying it. I'm so glad I have Libro.fm around to help me make that happen in a way that I can feel good about. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to meet you and to chat with you. I have already sort of been fangirling to you about your book, which we'll talk about more at the end of this conversation. But in the meantime, you and I are having a conversation about Sharon Creech's book, Chasing Redbird, which was published in 1997. Let's get started. Why did you want to read this book? Why was this your pick for the podcast? Well, this book was my favorite one growing up. I was really obsessed with all of Sharon Creech's books, really, and I still have like probably five or six of them. But this one made the strongest impact on me. Do you remember anything about those early reading experiences of Chasing Redbird? Did you read it multiple times or was it just like one time that really stuck with you? I read it and then I made like all of my friends read it. I liked, it was a little bit creepy. Like there was, it was a little bit morbid. And when I was young, I found that kind of fascinating. And I was reading this um, in preparation for this talk a couple days ago. And it was really funny, the difference between how I read it as an adult and how I read it as a kid and the difference in how much I liked the creepiness factor. Yeah, I read this a lot. (laughs) 
Well, I actually, I came upon lots of blog reviews of this book and I'll include links to all of them in the show notes for this episode for listeners who want to check them out. But I came across one that was written by a woman in 2013 and she talks about how every year on her birthday, her tradition is to spend time over that birthday week reading Chasing Redbird. And on her 23rd birthday in 2013, she talks about how she had devoted her entire like actual birthday day to reading Chasing Redbird. She said that she had read Chasing Redbird something like 60 or 70 times. She said she read it 25 times between the first time she read it at the end of fifth grade and the end of sixth grade. So you're not alone as somebody who has read it many times. I read it when I was a kid. I too was a big Sharon Creech fan. Listeners might remember that we covered Walk Two Moons on the podcast a couple of years ago, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. And I think I I remembered Walk Two Moons a little bit more clearly. Like when, when I reread that book for the podcast, I was like, okay, I know what this is about. I kind of know what I'm getting into when I'm starting this book. And I, I remembered that I really liked Chasing Redbird, but it wasn't until I picked it up again last week and it all came, it all came back to me. Like, I was like, oh, all of these little details, all of these moments, all of these elements of the story, of the characters, of the setting were in my brain and I didn't even... I didn't even know it. Like there were even specific lines, like the opening chapter where she's talking about the spaghetti and the meatballs and how life is spaghetti with meatballs and there are worms and meatballs. It's like, oh, I have been thinking about this for the last 20 years and I didn't even know it. So I guess this book made a bigger impact on me than I realized. Yeah, the spaghetti thing, that's funny because reading that as an adult made me realize how literal minded I was when I was like 12, 13, and I read it and I was like, oh, this lady has a picture of worms in her kitchen, like actual worms. (laughs) You're like, why would anybody do that? That seems super weird. I actually, I wanted to read that. So excuse any page turning listeners, but I do think it's a great opening for a chapter book for kids. Um, The chapter is called Tangled Spaghetti and it starts like this. Worms dangled in Aunt Jessie's kitchen, red worms swarming over a lump of brown mud in a bowl. The bull and the worms and the lump of mud were in a cross-stitched picture hanging above the stove. When I learned to read, I made out these words in blue letters beneath the bowl. Life is a bowl of spaghetti. Those worms weren't worms. They were spaghetti. I imagined myself rummaging among the twisted strands of pasta. That was my life. There were more words. Every now and then you get a meatball. That mud was a meatball. So I can see I can see how you would be like, oh, so it's worms and mud and what a lovely decor choice, Aunt Jessie. But I think... Oh, there's just so much in this book that I read differently as an adult. And I think right off the bat, this concept of this little cross-stitched plate of pasta with meatballs, it just like it hit me at a different place as an adult, especially after the year that so many of us have had, which I feel like has been full of like a lot of bad meatballs or frustrating meatballs or limping meatballs. I was like, wow, this book is so wise. I think that was one of my first impressions of it as I was getting back into it. Like this is a book that I think gives young readers a lot of credit. Um, What were your first impressions getting back into it? Oh, um, I was just having memories of me and my friend because we used to sign off our letters back and forth with TNWM. Like that's how much I love this book. (laughs) This was like real for you. Yeah. Oh, I love that. But I haven't read it in so long. I'm so glad this gave you a reason to do it again. That makes me so happy. So listeners, I have to remember the acronym. TNWM, till next we meet. Till next we meet. This is why I need somebody who's read it a million times on this <laughs> podcast with me. Till next we meet. So glad that I gave you a reason to come back to it. So we meet Zinni. 
at the beginning of the book, we meet this bowl of spaghetti and meatballs, but we also meet Zinni, who is our main character. Her full name is Zinnia. And I, I feel like that was one of the details that had stuck with me for all of these years. Like, I was like, I think that this is a pretty name that I heard at some point, And that's a cool name, Zinni. And I've never read another book or seen a movie with a character named Zinni or Zinnia. And we meet her and she's a member of this big, boisterous, loud, crazy, chaotic family. And she's kind of smack in the middle. Um, She's number three. And she's sort of one of the quieter members of the family. I'd love to hear more about like your relationship with Zinni as a character, both when you were a kid and now. Do you remember like relating to her? Was that part of your connection to the story when you were a kid? Yeah, being outside all the time. And I love the idea of finding a trail and clearing it by myself and being able to camp out and just doing what I wanted. I love that. Yeah, she's really special. Um, I think that what's kind of cool about her is that one of the things that's frustrating is that we can see how special she is and she doesn't know that she's special. Not only does she not know that she's special, but she sort of thinks that she is the source of a lot of problems in her family. She's 13 years old and her family has been through a lot of loss. When she was four, her cousin Rose passed away and they were almost the exact same age. And Zinni's family lives like on the same property as her aunt and uncle and at one point, her cousin Rose, they all lived really like together, basically. And because Zinni is sort of like on the quieter side, she's not as into the chaos of her big family as everybody else is. She always kind of found herself gravitating toward Jesse and Nate and Rose. So Rose passed away and it was really tragic. Not only was it tragic, but because Rose passed away from a case of whooping cough that Zinni passed on to her, Zinni has sort of carried a lot of guilt all of these years that like it was her fault that Rose passed away and that now she is seeing her aunt and uncle in mourning for all of these years. So that happened. And then more recently, Aunt Jessie passed away. And Zinni's like a little less clear on why that happened. She thinks that it's her fault because she scared Aunt Jessie with a snake, which is her like number one fear. The doctor said it was diabetes, but Zinni is carrying a lot of guilt for really everything. She jokes that she's like an agent of doom, but it's not really a joke. Like she really thinks that she has caused all of these problems for her family. And it's it's just heartbreaking because not only is she, in some ways it's sort of this trope, right? Of like a big family and there's always one kid who feels like they're getting lost in the mix. And Zinni is definitely that kid. But she on top of that is a kid who just feels like everything is her fault. And already we're set up for like, okay, this, this girl has to go on a journey. And it's, it's just real as an adult, like, I don't know, I guess processing that a 13-year-old could feel that way. It was just very upsetting. Yeah, I felt so awful for Zinni. And I liked how Jake Boone came in and kind of stirred things up for her a little bit and, you know, gave her attention for once. And Yeah, I have a lot of feelings about Jake Boone. Let's talk about Jake Boone because we have a lot of trail to discuss, a lot of trail to cover. See what I did there? (laughs) But Jake Boone is like a whole other issue. So Jake Boone is this older boy. He's 16, I believe. Zinni is 13. And he's like the cool boy around. And Zinni is like, he could never like me. Not only because she you know, sees that he's so cool and good looking, but also because she has this history of watching all of these boys come to her parents' house and really use her to get to her other sisters, who she perceives as being prettier and cooler and more popular and all these other things. There is a boy in particular named Tommy Salami, which is like, great, love Tommy Salami, who Zinni had thought liked her. And it turned out that he had just been bringing all of these gifts to her because he wanted her older sister May's attention, which is 
such a bummer and so rude on the part of all these boys. So as soon as Jake Boone kind of starts coming around, Zinni assumes that it's the same thing, history repeating itself. It has to be an interest that he has in her sisters. But no, Jake Boone, as we can tell as readers, especially as grown-up readers, Sarah, we're like, no, he has his eye on you. But his methods are a little bit suspect. I am not gonna lie. And I think I read them differently this time around. So he like steals things for her. Yeah. A puppy, which I'm like, oh my God, I love dogs, love puppies. We find out that there is a missing puppy in town. And, you know, we make the connection. We realize that Jake Boone has taken this puppy and left it the stolen puppy at Zinni's house. He steals a horse for her. They're all, he steals his mother's ring. Like all of these things that she interprets, you know, as overtures really intended for her sisters, but also like, hmm. Isn't this interesting that he's going to all this trouble? He's really just stealing everything from everybody in town. And I did not know how to feel about it as an adult. Did you have that experience? Yeah, I had forgotten how much that he stole. Like she said that she didn't like Chuck. So he went and stole a red convertible just to impress her. And I was like, wow, this kid is going to go to jail. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he really, he had no boundaries. Which, like, on the one hand, you have to admire that he's like, I'm all in. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get her attention. But also, we're like, "Mm, I feel like you're making some unwise decisions. Mm -hmm. Where I really kind of had a moment of eyebrow raising was a bit later on in the book when Zinni is on her trail, which we'll discuss shortly. And it becomes clear to her that Jake has followed her. And again, this is a thing when I I was a kid, I was like, oh, this is so dreamy. This is like so romantic. How amazing that he would follow her and look out for her and like make sure that everything's going to be okay. But an important note is he asked her if he could go with her and she said no. So now I'm like, you kind of imposed yourself on this personal journey that she needed to take for herself. She did not want you around. And while it is helpful in the end that he's kind of like checking in on her, I don't know. For me, he towed the line between like being her knight in shining armor and a bit of a creep. Yeah. Like they don't get into this in the book either. And it's probably not even something that we're supposed to think about. But like she changed her clothes out there. She went to the bathroom out there in the woods and he was there. So true. We don't even know where (laughs) he was in relation to her. Like these are excellent points. I hadn't thought about them, but you're absolutely right. How far away was he? Like we don't know. And he is a couple of years older, which I think, you know, when you're an adult, three years isn't a big difference. But there's a big difference between being 13 and being 16. Yeah, that's a gulf. A gulf. I mean, I, I I, think when I was 13, I was probably still into like Lisa Frank stuff. And when I was 16, I was like, I need to watch Laguna Beach and be <laughs> as cool as they are. And those are two very different versions of me. As listeners know, I was a very late bloomer. Like I didn't have my first kiss until I was 16 or 17. Um, so to me, like the idea that there's this 16 year old boy who was like so independent that he's out there like stealing things from people and just like cruising around town and also making these decisions to follow this 13-year-old girl who said that she did not want him around. It just, it feels a little invasive for me. Yeah. Her maturity level too, like it just, 
I don't know. When I was about 13 and reading this, I was like, yeah, older boy. <laughs> and then you're an adult looking back on it. It's like, what, get away, get him away from her. <laughs> He's too old for her. Yeah. And I just, I'm not convinced that he had great intentions. Not to say that somebody who has had bad intentions in the past can't reform themselves and can't, you know, show up in a different way and be a great partner. But it just felt, it felt like it got off on a weird foot for me. And this is the the consequence of coming back to these stories when you're an adult, because when I was a kid, I was like, this is so romantic. Like, I love that he would do anything for her and that he is not taking no for an answer. (laughs) But I think that we interpret those stories in 2021 is a lot different, right? Like this whole notion of a guy that doesn't take no for an answer, it does not hold up to our scrutiny now. Yeah. He's like, I will literally follow you into the woods and I will just do whatever I can to be close to you. That being said, I I will disagree with myself for a second because as much as I did not dig his methods um, and as much as his like romantic lead thing didn't hold up for me as well now that I'm reading it as an adult I do think that his interest in Zinni was an interesting growth moment for her and I think that this is a relatable situation for a lot of people I think it comes in different forms and at different times but I do think that whether it's a friend or romantic interest I do think everybody has a moment in their tween or teen years when somebody takes an interest in them in some form and it makes them realize like oh I am maybe selling myself short maybe I am not seeing how wonderful I am like maybe this is a new perspective on myself and I had that happen when I was in high school and I I think I had always perceived myself a certain way and when I was 16 or 17 I had an experience where I met a new group of people and I met a boy and they just made me realize that I like maybe wasn't, hadn't been as confident as I could have been. And I think that it took Zinni a long time to get there, but I think that there was something about this back and forth she was having with Jake over the course of the summer that at some point did sort of embolden her to see how much she had to offer in a way that maybe she couldn't before. Yeah. She kept pushing at him to um, like, towards her sister may because she expected you know she's like you actually want her so just admit it so she was repeatedly bringing up her sister may and i just loved that may didn't get picked (laughs) because may needed it it's healthy for her yeah i think may needed a minute to be like you're great you're cute you're fun you're cool you're popular you have a great personality but this one's not for you yeah let zinni have one (laughs) Yeah, just let her have one. You know, she's great. Zinni is also wonderful. Okay, so where are we coming down on this? Jake Boone, hero or creep? Nostalgia wins. I got to go with hero. <laughs> All right, you're going to go hero. Just for the sake of making this a debate, I'll say creep. And okay. <laughs> Listeners, I would love to hear what you think. Let us know. Is Jake Boone a hero or is he a creep? As I said before, when I was a kid, totally into him as a hero. Now... Just a little dicier for me. So we have the Jake Boone situation. He's kind of in the background of all of this. But the really like core, the core element of this book is Zinni's trail. And the trail in question is this trail that Zinni discovers behind the house. And she like is just such an outdoorsy kid. She loves to have adventures. She loves to be alone. She loves to explore. Her Aunt Jessie and Uncle Nate also love to be outside. So she has a lot of good memories of like exploring things with them. And she realizes that there's this trail behind her house. 
she does some research at the library, like all of those moments, those scenes of like going to the library and talking to the library. And I was like, those are things that I don't know that we ever get back in 2021, like that analog process of like, I'm going to go to the library and like ask librarian and she's going to pull out some maps or, or it was maybe like the local, it was like the township, like just the, the various places that she was going to get this research. I was like, I don't know that those experiences come back in our digital world. And it made me feel very nostalgic for just like my more analog life of the 90s. Yeah. In a musty room with one single light bulb. Yes. In Bybanks, Kentucky, which I will note is one of the settings that we see in Walk Two Moons. For listeners who are paying very close attention, you might remember that that is the the hometown of Salamanca Riddle in Walk Two Moons. And Zinni and Sal were actually best friends before Sal moved away. This is one of my favorite literary tricks. I love when we just get a glimpse of a character from another one of an author's books in the book we're reading. I think it's so fun. It made me so happy to be reminded of Sal. It made me want to go back and reread Walk Two Moons again. So yeah, Zinni's doing this research about this trail. She discovers that it has this like really rich history. She discovers that it's 20 miles long and she takes it upon herself to clear the trail. We get the idea that the process of clearing this trail is much bigger for Zinni than just having clear trail in the backyard. And I think as grown-ups, if you will, it's a little bit easier to sort of pathologize a little bit about like what's really going on with her interest in this trail. And I'm curious about like how you read that this time around as she's developing this obsession with clearing the trail and she's starting to ask her parents questions about it as she's starting to consider clearing it. How did you interpret that this time? Well, this time I sympathize a little more with her mom mm. being the adult and um, letting Zinni go into the woods and find herself and process her grief. Because I think at this point, Jesse had only been gone for about a month or so. Yeah. So it was really fresh. Zinni wasn't one to talk about her feelings anyway. So I think when I was a kid, I kind of separated the death from the trail hmm. but you know being older now is um i just think that what sharon creech did is really beautiful and watching her evolution as she gets farther along the trail and what she can do and unpacking these memories that just start flying out of nowhere and she would remember things about baby rose and uh, memories about jesse and she starts thinking more about her family and um, maybe she could participate more a little bit, missing them, being surprised that she misses them. Yeah, I think that was one of my favorite moments this time around. So eventually her parents do let her take on a sort of more intense version of the trail clearing process that she had come up with originally, which was to kind of just like work for chunks of time during the day. She realizes that that's not going to be sustainable because the trail is so long that if she's going to walk a certain number of miles uh, every morning to work on clearing it, and then she has to turn around and go home, she's not going, going to be able to get any work done. So she convinces her parents to let her camp on the trail, which I thought was really great. And I think that my like independence craving kid self probably loved all of that. Like this idea that you'd be out on the trail, you'd be carrying all of your stuff in your backpack, and you would get to decide like when you ate, when you slept, like how long you spent working on the trail. And I was not an outdoorsy kid at all, but I was a kid who really craved that kind of autonomy and just the idea of like designing my day and figuring out how I wanted to spend my time. So I can see how that probably really appealed to me when I was growing up. 
but her parents do say like, okay, you can do this, but you have to come back and check in on a regular basis. There's a schedule, you have to check in. And I did think it was so sweet that when Zinni came back for the first time, she was so excited. And while I think that that could have been done in a way that felt a little bit more cliche, there was something about the way that Sharon Creech wrote it that it didn't feel cliche. Like, I think I saw it coming just because of course, like that, of course, she's going to miss them. And of course, this has to be a grass is always greener on the other side moment. But it didn't feel cliche. It felt very natural and organic the way she got home. And she was like, Oh, wait, I want them to be happy to see me. I sort of miss the noise. It's nice to be part of this bigger group of people. It really like snuck up on me. Yeah. Watching her growth. Yeah. And her parents are like, well, the stuff of their parents is complicated. Let's talk about her parents. So Her parents are overwhelmed with their children. And I think that we need to lay that groundwork first. I don't have children, so I don't know how that would feel, but I can imagine that even having one or two children would be a lot and having seven children, eight children, nine children, they have so many children, would be extremely overwhelming. And Zinni really just wants to be like known within her family, which I appreciate. I I really do get that. And I think she wants not only like the whole town to be able to recognize which one of her siblings she is because they all kind of blend together. She wants her parents to think that she is special and not special because she is the agent of doom as she sees herself, but they don't make it easy for her. Uh, Her parents say some like really off-putting things throughout the book. I wrote down a couple of them. At one point, her dad says to her, you're easier to deal with when you didn't talk. You know that? Yeah, that was rough. So rough. You know, she really is coming to them, trying to share her plans. She's looking for support. She's not really asking them for much. She does ask for a horse at one point, which was a stretch, but <laughs> she had sort of offered to like figure out how to get one. She She's very resourceful. And I do believe that if she had had no other choice but to get her own horse, she probably would have pulled it off. But her parents are just like very quick to shoot her down. But they do seem happy to see that she's growing. As you mentioned, she is sort of on this personal evolution while she's clearing the trail. And I'm sure her parents saw it as she was coming home. On one of her later trips home, Zinni's mom says to her, you look so fit and healthy. Good for you, Zinni. Good for you. And then Zinni thinks, good for you? This had a strange effect on me. Had I actually done something good or had something good happened to me? That phrase kept rolling around in my brain. Good for you. I thought that was so relatable because good for you is one of those phrases that I do think somebody says to you and you're like, are you being passive aggressive? Are you happy for me? Was, was I not good before and now I'm great? Or are you actually seeing my growth or are you just like congratulating me? Cause I like lucked out on something. So yeah, these like very small moments with her parents, I thought were really interesting. Yeah. It was kind of clear that since they had so many kids, they preferred her being kind of quiet because it's one less voice to push back and make trouble all the time. So they were really surprised when she like started talking and wanted to do something kind of big. Yeah, but they 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 really like take advantage of her too, which was upsetting. And they, they do forget her. So it's weird because I do think in moments they like are trying to see her and they're trying to support her and they want to understand what's what is driving her but in other moments they like totally disregard her there's one occasion where she comes home and like she can't find her parents she finds that there's another kid sleeping in her bed i assume one of her sister's friends her parents are basically like oh hey what's up nice to see you (laughs) 
And she's frustrated because like she hadn't even wanted to do these trips home originally. And then she surprises herself because she realizes that she's happy to see them. But she's like, I'm busy clearing a trail right now. Like it's a lot of work for me to come home. How annoying is this? And then her family just like expects her to sort of like hang out with her uncle Nate because he is bedridden because he's hurt. And they like don't really think twice about just leaving Zinni at home. And as somebody who like, I always forget what Enneagram number I am, but I'm whatever Enneagram number is the person who like really likes to feel needed. That always makes me feel very good. And I, I sort of saw parts of that in Zinni in this book where like it makes her feel really happy that her parents are like, okay, like you're the only one who can stay home with Uncle Nate. Like we're going to go to the circus. We're going to have a great time. But if you could just like stay home and make sure Uncle Nate is okay, we need that. And it would be so awesome. And I think when you're part of a big family, there is a tendency to sort of like crave the knowledge that like something that you have to offer is absolutely necessary for your family. And I I had this moment where I just felt so torn for her because I think if I were in her position, I would be like, oh my gosh, you need me? Like, yeah. you want me to do that? But at the same time, as an adult, I can see and I'm like, they are taking advantage of you. Like, why, why are they continuing not to see who you are? Yeah, they should have tried to include her more. And I mean, given how close she was to Jesse, it's surprising that her parents didn't want to sit down with her and really go through that and be there for her, but they just kind of abandoned her, it felt like, leaving her there with Nate when Nate was not mentally okay was also a suspect decision. Like, and take this kid to the circus. She needs a circus, by the way. Right, put the kid in the car. Even if she says she doesn't want to go to the circus because she's too busy clearing a trail, put her in the car. She needs to go see some tightrope walkers, please. Yes. I'd love to move into a conversation about the mental health aspects of this book, because I think you really just set us up with this mention of Uncle Nate and what's going on with him and the parents' decision to not really address with Zinni what's been going on in their family, more specifically with the loss of Aunt Jessie. I think what's really important to note is that, again, this book was written in 1997, and we have come such a long way, I think, as a society, as a culture, in our openness about conversations related to mental health all kinds of mental health concerns, depression, anxiety. I think we're more open about the different ways that people grieve, about the effects of grief, about kind of like the way that you need to take care of yourself when you're going through these kinds of things. I just, I could go on for a long time about the many ways in which I think that that conversation has progressed since this book came out. This book is like chock full of references to people that are going through some really heavy challenges with their mental health that are, are not putting names to them and that are not dealing with them. And I thought it was really interesting on a couple of levels because I think in some ways, like it makes sense to me that you wouldn't put a name to it because I think that's often how kids experience things, even in 2021, like kids can sense when something is maybe not right with somebody that they love, but they're not necessarily going to be able to understand that like something has a name or it's called something. They're not going to be able to make assumptions about potential diagnoses. But it also made me wonder like, if this book were written in 2021, I wonder how much more explicit the conversations would be if there would be a couple of other references to the things that Uncle Nate, for example, is experiencing. Because to your point, Sarah, like he is not in a good place. He can't be left alone. Like that's why Zinni has to stay home because he is not only physically injured, but he's like, he, he has not been well since his wife passed away. And I just wonder if this book were written in 2021, if 
Sharon Creech or some other author would potentially address it differently. Do you think that that's where we are today? Do you think that's where the literary world is now? Yeah, I think it wouldn't be quite as vague if it were written today. But I do like seeing how Zinni viewed it through her mind. Um, She didn't really have the terminology for it. And it was really heartbreaking to see older because when I read it when I was younger it was like this quirky thing about Uncle Nate you know he's running around with a stick and he's beating belts and anything that resembles a snake oh he's just a character that's like how I processed it no that's interesting and then reading it now like running around with a camera and thinking that he's taking pictures of his dead wife and his brother's not really saying anything about it this man desperately needs help It's really sad. I think that's a great point. I think it's easy to read this book if you're a kid who doesn't really have a command of language around mental health, which most kids don't, um, to read the book as like Uncle Nate is sort of this eccentric character and Zinni's parents, they sort of have to keep their heads down in a different way. They have all of these kids that they have to take care of. They constantly have to be on the move and working. And Uncle Nate, he doesn't at this point have anyone left to take care of. And so he's kind of just like doing his thing. And when you're a kid and you don't really know what's going on, to your point, it's like, oh, isn't this kind of strange that he's like trying to kill everything that looks like a snake because Aunt Jessie was afraid of them. And he's chasing Redbird. He called Aunt Jessie Redbird. But it's really because he has some issues that have not been addressed and he's grieving. But it's not even just Uncle Nate. Like, I think that the fact that Zinni's parents are not talking even among themselves really or with their own children about the loss of Aunt Jessie speaks to some like serious repressed feelings that probably need to be dealt with like I just picture these people literally just moving on with their lives yeah and like never talking about anything and like patting Zinni on the head and being like oh we're sorry about Aunt Jessie like let's go have dinner like what do you want to have for dinner it feels very robotic and There's stuff going on there too. Like they need to deal with their feelings and Zinni certainly needs help. Like Zinni would benefit from a therapist so much. Like she really needs somebody to talk to. And it just, I feel like every single character in this book, Jake, like Jake must have some stuff going on that he feels compelled to steal everything. Like everybody in this town, everybody in this book at least probably like is not talking about something that they should be talking about. And it would be really healthy for them mentally to do so. Yeah. So I wonder if the book were written today, if there would be a bit more openness about what's gone on. I know you mentioned that you had a little bit more sympathy for Zinni's mom this time around, or at least to the extent that Zinni is like, I'm going to go make a trail by myself. Bye. I'm wondering if you had any different reactions to her with respect to Zinni's relationship with Aunt Jessie and Uncle Nate, because that's something that comes into play later on in the book. I pulled out a couple of lines that sort of point to this issue. Zinni thinks, I think that even though she loved Aunt Jessie and missed her, mom was getting tired of hearing me refer to Aunt Jessie as the ultimate authority. Because Zinni's always talking about Aunt Jessie. Like, Aunt Jessie loved to do this. Aunt Jessie told me that. I'm doing this because Aunt Jessie would want me to. And there are a lot of moments like that later in the book where Zinni's kind of coming to understand that, like, this might be hurtful to her parents. Like, this might have been hard for them to not really have her around as much because she was always with Aunt Jessie and Uncle Nate. Did you have a different kind of feeling about Zinni's mom on that front too? Or was it really more limited to like Zinni's adventure on the trail? Yeah. um, 
Like you can see how after Rose passes away and Jesse and Nate don't have any other children and Zinni's parents have a ton of children. So it's like you can see from the parents' point of view how they would be okay with Nate and Jesse kind of taking Zinni under their wing because they don't have anybody. And you would feel really bad and you'd feel guilty because you have all these healthy children. But then as Zinni grows up, there are consequences to that. She is more attached to her aunt and uncle than to her parents. She said that she loves Uncle Nate more than her own dad. And um, like they kind of, they did that. They let that happen. But also it would be hurtful, I think, to be. You see Zinni holding Jesse up on a pedestal and closer to her. And you would be jealous as a mother to see it. Yeah, I felt I felt sad for her parents. I felt like her parents had maybe let the situation get a bit ahead of them. Like I think they probably they probably saw the situation with Zinni getting close to her aunt and uncle early on, right after they lost Rose in a really positive way. They're like, this is so great. Maybe this will make things a little bit easier for Jesse and Nate. They're lonely. Maybe being with Zinni will help them grieve. But years and years pass and that dynamic changes and it becomes more hurtful. And they realize that like Zinni has grown up without them. And I think it's also, it's almost like this, there's something like classic teenage angst about this situation because it's like Zinni is like, well, you guys don't understand me. Like nobody gets me. Nobody sees me for who I am. And yet at the same time, she hasn't really given them the opportunity to see who she is. But at the same time, like her parents have like kind of allowed her to stray and go spend all this time with another set of surrogate parents. So there's this like family, there's this complicated family dynamic tied up in what I think we can read as like your standard level of teenage angsty behavior, but nobody feels good about it. Like everybody feels crappy about what's going on. And I do feel sorry for her parents because I think they like thought maybe they were doing a good thing. And then 10 years later, they look up and they're like, oh, we kind of lost her. Yeah. You can see exactly how it all happened. Yeah. It's really sad. I do like, I have high hopes for how this family might be able to come together when this book is over. I have like a lot of like big picture questions and thoughts about this book. And I'd love to like pick your brain. So Zinni's out on this trail. And as you mentioned, all of these memories are coming back to her. She stumbles upon all of these like physical reminders, physical tokens of the life that she had with her cousin, of the times that she spent with her aunt and uncle. There's so many little details that I almost can't even keep track of them all. Like I was trying to kind of take stock of all of them before I jumped on today. And like Sharon Creech's writing is so great that I sort of feel like I got lost in a lot of the details and I wasn't even like taking notes about them because I was just trying to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Overall, like, what do you think it is that Zinni took from that trail when she she clears all 20 miles of it? She reaches her goal. She says, for several glorious minutes there, I was about the happiest person on the face of this planet. The trail was beautiful and it was so good. I looked up into the trees in the sky and the sky was vast and wide. I heard in my head the soft refrain of a song Aunt Jessie used to sing. And then I had the oddest feeling, warm and comforting, as if a gentle hand had reached down from the heavens and stroked my hair is so sweet what do you think on the whole zinni is really taking from this experience with the trail i think she is attracted to the idea of working on something that seems important and bigger than herself because her accomplishments tend to get lost in her family everyone's already done everything so this trail is her she doesn't have to share it with anybody she can do it and other people are 
impressed with what she's doing. So she's getting that validation that she is doing something cool. And the fact that she can stay busy physically and kind of letting her mind process the grief, seeing the cabin and everything that's in there. Yeah, I think what she took from the trail, well, that's like tied up in the other stuff that she found, like the the syringes and she realized that she wasn't responsible for Jesse's death so she could let that go and when she realized um well I got the whooping cough from somebody else and I gave it to Rose I didn't just you know summon it from thin air so I'm not responsible for that either and letting go of the idea that she had killed both of these people so she kind of got liberation from her own guilt yeah that moment of her realizing that she got whooping cough from somebody else that really affected me because I think this is a common thing. I am a person who I, I take, I think I, I take on more guilt and responsibility for things than I need to. And this is just a thing that I'm working on as an adult. This is me. And as I was like, I was thinking through the situation through Cindy's eyes, I was like, oh, right. Like somebody hurt me too. Like I'm not just responsible for getting somebody else sick. I'm not just responsible for causing suffering. Like Somebody caused the suffering for me. Like I too had whooping cough. This wasn't just something that I came up with and like decided to spread to others. It was this very sort of like physical manifestation of an emotional thing that I think a lot of people deal with, um, especially in adulthood of like trying to figure out how much responsibility you can sort of realistically take for other people and for other people's hurt and pain and all these other things. And it was just this very like tangible example of like, Sure. I mean, if you want to take on responsibility for everybody's emotional state all the time, I guess you can do that. But you also are allowed to recognize that like people put those things on you too. Like you too hurt. You can't get so caught up in other people's pain that you're not able to recognize your own. And that was like very affecting for me that moment. Yeah, I agree. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, just sort of at my like, you know, always processing my emotional state level. What did you think about like, where we leave Zinni as far as like her identity and what this experience has taught her about her identity and like maybe what is ahead for her. Like I couldn't stop thinking about, you know, we mentioned it before, like what's going to happen to this family in the future. But as the book came to a close, I was like, I wonder what's going to happen for Zinni. I wonder how she is sort of going to be able to stand firm in who she is and what this journey has taught her about that. I don't know because we don't really know Zinni when she's not grieving. So it's really hard to say, but you can see her shed a lot of weight also when she realizes that Nate didn't have like another woman back in the woods that he was meeting up with and he didn't really forget Rose. He didn't really forget Jesse because those, their things were disappearing from the house. So she thinks, well, they're just forgetting them and that would be really lonely. So at the end of the book, when she realizes that, um, Everyone else is missing Jesse too. And the family goes down to the cabin and they see the things that belong to Jesse and Rose in there. She's spending more time with Jake. I think she will come out of her shell a little bit. I think she'll start interacting more with her family. That's what I hope she will do. Yeah. I mean, even though I'm like not sure that I'm a Jake fan, I think the fact <laughs> that she's like pursuing a relationship with him, even if he is a creeper, um, means that she is like starting to realize that like, I can both be part of my family and make decisions that put me in situations separate from them. I can establish relationships outside of this like 
crazy circus of a family life that I have. I think that's really healthy. And I, I echo everything else that you said. I think I have high hopes for her. Did you have a favorite moment on this reread? Like, was there a favorite scene? Maybe something that was different from a favorite scene from a previous reading? Hmm. Trying to think. I don't know. I think maybe when she was like half asleep, so we don't know if she actually sees Aunt Jessie or if um, it's an illusion. But I like the way that that was written and the closure that we get for Zinni and how cathartic it is for her because uh, her brother Ben and her uncle Nate supposedly have seen Aunt Jessie's ghosts all over the property and she's like well why not me you know I was so close to her and I loved her and how come I don't get to see her so being able to see Aunt Jessie even if it wasn't real I really love that I thought that was a beautiful moment I thought the ambiguity that we get about whether or not people are seeing Aunt Jessie was really well done I loved these photos that Uncle Nate is bringing back, specifically the one that's a picture of him. Yes. Who took that? Who took it? It has, it was, of course, it was Jesse. And of course, now in 2021, we're like a, a selfie. But in 1997, selfies weren't a thing. And so yeah, he's like, oh, <laughs> of course, it's my wife. Like she is taking photos of me. So I love that that was like his proof that she was out there. And I love that, like the author, I don't think, I think the author wants to leave it up to us to decide like if we believe that that she was actually around or if they all just wanted her to be and if they all just wanted her to be around and they made it so then like that's okay too and I think we've all or many of us have experienced that and yeah I loved that I love that like well it's, she took my picture so here's my picture from the woods don't you like it on the whole Sarah how did this rereading experience compare to your memories of reading this book when you were a kid did it hold up did it let you down in some way it really held up. I was worried that like it would be, I don't know, I would find something in there that I wouldn't like. The only thing that really stood out to me that I didn't think about at all on my first read was the fact that Aunt Jessie's death was probably preventable if they had taken that woman to a hospital because she was not herself for a long time. She curled up inside a drawer and was like talking to herself. You mean she was she was not there. And if they had gotten her some medical intervention, then she wouldn't have died. But they just let her go to bed as usual. And then she died. Yeah, that's a good point. But I am glad that other than that, it held up for you. I was I was pleasantly surprised too. I didn't really have any expectation that it wouldn't just because I'd read Walk Two Moons and that one had held up pretty well. But it was it's always nice to find a book that's like unproblematic even 23 years after it was written. Yeah. If anything, I just like wanted more of it. Like I think the mental health stuff, it's not problematic that we didn't go into it more, but I think like if the book didn't hold up for me, it was just because I feel like there are elements of this book that read as though they're targeted toward an adult audience. So I was like, well, why aren't we getting more? Like the book is just so rich and so nuanced and so complicated that when it sort of hit its limit as far as like the things it was exploring, I was like, but wait, aren't we going further? And that I would say is my only like main complaint about it. Yeah, I love the writing. I'm so glad that I got to read it too, because I found it's like if you peel back the layers on my writing now, Sharon creatures at the bottom of it. And I can see how I have been building on on that my whole life, which is wow. <laughs> That's so special. That's like so cool. I'm so glad I reread it. I'm so glad you did too. Other than Chasing Redbird, have you been reading anything else lately that you loved and that you would recommend to our listeners? 
Most recently, I read a book called The Shoddy Scam by Lily Vale, and it's a second chance romance. I just absolutely loved it. The writing is gorgeous, and it's fun, and it's really emotional, really pulled on my heartstrings, and I think it comes out in a few months. I don't know the exact date. Well, I will find out, and I will make sure our listeners know. I will include a link to it in the show notes for this episode. But of course, we have to talk about your new book, Sarah. You just mentioned your writing. And as I already shared, I've been fangirling to you about how much I loved Twice Shy, which is now available for listeners to pick up. I will have a link to the bookshop.org page easily available for you. Sarah, do you want to share a little bit about your book? Okay. Well, Twice Shy is about a woman named Mabel who is lonely and kind of had an unlucky rough life. Um, she was recently catfished by a co-worker and um, she inherits a mansion from her dead Aunt Violet. And she had stayed at the house when she was younger and it was like this safe haven for her when she was younger. So she's really looking forward to going back there and you know, being in this beautiful place, but then she goes back and it's in shambles. And not only that, but she has to share it with this really grouchy groundskeeper named Wesley. And they have different ideas of what they want to do with the property. And he seems like he does not want her there at all. So they kind of butt heads, but then she comes to find out he's maybe not all that he seems. I love that. That's a great description. My two very favorite things about your book, I'll embarrass you for a second. The first is that you are absolutely magical with setting. I loved the settings in the book. I loved the sort of like water park resort that Maybell works at in the beginning. I loved the estate. I love the way you describe the way that they transform it. I won't share any details because you have to read it to find out. And then my other very favorite thing was that Wesley is just like a very unique kind of leading man. And we find out some things about him at the end that I think uh, have for too long gone unexplored with male characters and books. And so I really appreciated that. And I loved it. Listeners, I'm going to be running a giveaway uh, for Twice Shy. If you're listening in real time, check the SSR Instagram feed tomorrow, Wednesday, the 14th. Um, There are going to be three copies available for you to grab. Trust me, you want to read them. Plus, fun fact, the cover of Twice Shy, the yellow, is like basically SSR yellow. So it's like a match made in heaven. And I love that. (laughs) Sarah, I'm so glad we had a chance to chat. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm glad we both had the chance to revisit this special book. And um, it was just great chatting with you tonight. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm really glad that I reread the book and it was great talking to you about it. Best of luck with Twice Shy. We'll chat soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Hi. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.